on page 839 in your Bibles. Over to 840. But there's actually one line in this whole story that stands out if you read it. And it's at the start of chapter 5. Look over to page 840. And look at the end of verse 4. Mark has been describing a man who's completely out of control. And look at the end of verse 4, where he writes this. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to subdue him. Nobody could calm down this man. Completely out of control. Nobody. And that line has come in the middle of this section of Mark, where we see that there's a new intensity now to Mark's writing. He's giving us more and more details, like this, frankly, tragic description here about a man no one was strong enough to subdue. The details are, are actually upsetting, that people would be trying to bind this man in chains, and that this man was animal-like, resisting, but nobody could help him, or even restrain him for that matter. Nobody was strong enough. Now, moments earlier, Sylvia read for us, you heard that in the boat, a boat that was nearly filled up with water in the middle of a storm, not even the seasoned fishermen that were sitting there had the skill to stop themselves from drowning. I guess they weren't strong enough either. So in both the desperate storm, the end of chapter 4, and with this desperate man, Mark helps us see that quite amazingly, there was one who was strong enough. There was one who was strong enough to subdue not just the forces of nature, but also the, the forces of the most profoundly disturbing evil. Mark's not just telling us that for information. He's putting a challenge to us. And it's a bit like this. Can I trust him? Can I trust Jesus? Or will I simply ask him to go away? And so here are the two related challenges in, in this part of Mark. And that's what we're going to look at. Well, the first one, here it is. Mark's challenging us to trust Jesus who rules over the natural world. We should trust him from verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 35. Now, something very important as we look at this story. These aren't parables. Now, there are parables, and sometimes Jesus does use stories. But this is not a parable. This is an eyewitness account. So Mark isn't offering us a moral of the story like, Jesus calms the storms of our lives. And sometimes you might hear things like that, but that's not what Mark's doing here. He's not saying Jesus will calm the storms of all our lives. He's actually reporting something that, that really happened. Verse 37, you'll see it described as a great windstorm, or as the NIV puts it, as a furious squall. A situation where, where grown men really feared for their lives. The waves were already coming into the boat, and it was filling up. And what's Jesus do? Well, verse 38. He's asleep on the cushion. Interesting the detail, the cushion. You know, obviously it could have been something used for ballast, but there was a cushion in there, and Jesus is lying asleep. And it's interesting, those details that Mark records help us understand that this is a historical account. In this case, not a parable. And so the, the disciples, they wake him up and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? We're going to die in this storm. It's a bit ironic. They're a bunch of fishermen. 
used to the water, used to boats, throwing nets out, and sure, they come across many dangers. And they go to fishing and wake up the teacher, presumably with softer hands, used to the land. And they accuse him with a question. Look at the question that they accuse him. They say, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? What are they asking Jesus? Are they asking him to rescue them? Well, it doesn't seem likely that that's what they're, what they're on about here. It seems they said the question from these scared men who didn't trust him to save them from the storm. Don't you even care that we're perishing? Well, Jesus gives them two rebukes. Well, he gives two rebukes. Firstly, verse 39, it's a rebuke of sorts. Have a look at it. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, just over the cage. Mark tells us, then the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The sheer magnitude of that. I mean, have you thought about these words? And the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. It's, it's quite incredible. For a storm to take down could take days, and yet Jesus says three words, and all of a sudden there's a great calm. Well, then there's a second rebuke. So he's rebuked. So he's spoken to natural phenomena. He's spoken to wind and waves. And now he turns to the disciples, verse 40, and he rebukes them. He says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, here's what's interesting, because having gone from almost dying in the storm, or feeling that they were going to die, totally petrified, challenging Jesus with this question, Suddenly the storm has stopped, and yet they go back to fear. Do you see that? They're back to fear, verse, 40, verse 41. The verse says they were filled with great fear. And this time it's not the storm that's scaring them, but it's a kind of awe. It's an unsettled sense that Jesus is more than a teacher. I don't think we're going to make progress understanding the Christian message if we don't ever feel that kind of unsettled sense that Jesus is more than just a teacher. Have you ever wrestled with that? Have you ever thought about that idea? And the thing is, those people that we live amongst definitely don't have that understanding of Jesus. It wouldn't be the majority position of understanding who Jesus is here in Ireland, perhaps even the world. Most people wouldn't think of Jesus as more than a teacher. And in fact, most people are probably happy with Jesus the good teacher designation. But Mark is pressing something else here. Christianity, he says, is more than a moral code to live by. It's more than something that will make nice citizens of us. I was a teacher, and I used to teach RE in schools. And I was really fed up with teaching Christianity in that way. RE textbook Jesus, if you like. Jesus, the, the CEO of a world religion, just like the other world religions. A chapter in the book, and then another chapter of another world religion, and then another chapter. And that view of Jesus is not just annoyingly dull, it misses the point. And Mark wants us to get the point. Is it on, Lou? It's not. Good. It misses the point about Jesus. He's not just the head of a religion, he's not just a moral teacher. So then the disciples ask the question. It's interesting that this question comes at this point then, when we might wonder who he is. 
Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. It's almost as if Mark wants us, if we're coming to read this passage again today, to reckon with the same question. Who then is this? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a good teacher who has power over natural phenomena? Well, what could Mark be pointing at? You see, Mark's concluding as the disciples are starting to see that Jesus is God himself. Who else could do this but God himself? Only God has the ability to speak and command nature to do things, just as we saw a few weeks ago, that only God has the power to forgive sin. And therefore, the challenge to us, will we trust Jesus who rules over nature? And will you trust him even before he intervenes? Or even when the situation is black or seemingly hopeless, will you trust Jesus? Mark's pushing us to make that decision. Well, before we get to thinking too much about that, we're straight into the next episode here, the start of chapter 5. Now we're face to face with a man, Mark tells us, has an unclean or an evil spirit there, verse 2. The man no one was strong enough to control as we saw at the start. Well, let's pick it up from verse 3. Have a look at this man. He lived among the tombs. What an existence. And nobody could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Uh, one of the commentators I read this week says that this might be one of the most pitiful descriptions of human wretchedness in all of the Bible. It's awful, isn't it? This desperate, tragic man living with the dead among the tombs and completely out of control. And yet strong too. But when Jesus arrives, there's an immediate confrontation. So this man who's just stilled the storm, spoken to wind and waves, suddenly he's about to confront this man. And this is what happens. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now he only saw Jesus, verse 6, and he's on his knees. Isn't there a kind of irony here that this guy adjures or commands Jesus? And yet he's on his knees, starting to see who he is. And yet he commands Jesus. But immediately he's seen the power before him. And he recognizes what Mark is trying to get us to recognize. Do you remember Mark chapter 1 verse 1? Flip back and just have a look at it. What is Mark trying to tell us here? The beginning Mark 1 verse 1 of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this man who's completely out of control in chapter 5 has it right. He says, you're Jesus, Son of the Most High God. He gets it. And then in chapter 5 as Jesus talks to him, we start to see who's really in control. Asked for his name, the man says, verse 9, his name is Legion. Now, a legion in army speak is about 6,000 men. And before our eyes, remarkably, as, as Mark writes this down, as he describes what's going on, 
Jesus was able to control this region. How do we know that? Well, the, the details in the text. Look, look at the word begged. They begged. So the, this man filled with these demons, they begged him, saying, and then verse 13, Jesus gave them permission. So they're begging Jesus. He's the one in control, giving the permission. All the details are here. And the unclean spirits came out. It's, it's really quite bizarre, isn't it? They, they entered caves and a herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down a steep bank into the sea where they're drowned. Mark's describing Jesus Christ subduing evil spirits. This man completely out of control. And it's so troubling and bizarre what's going on. But however you describe it, there's only one man in control. Only one. Look back to chapter 3, verse 27. Jesus himself used an illustration when he was being accused of all sorts of evil. But look at chapter 3, verse 27. Jesus used this illustration. He said, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Isn't it interesting that a few chapters later, Mark's describing a strong man who couldn't be bound. And yet right before our eyes, Jesus Christ is the one who can bind him. Jesus is the one that can control him when nobody else could. Jesus has power over all of this, all of this evil. No one could control him, except, of course, Jesus Christ. Here's the stronger man. And do you remember that description as, as John the Baptist in chapter 1 said, one's going to come who's mightier than me, stronger. Well, here is the stronger one, the mightier one. All these things are starting to come together now. And, and Mark shifts now to tell us how all this went down with the crowd watching. So we're back in the action. How's this going to work? People who knew of this crazy guy living among the tombs, who has now suddenly had these evil spirits cast out of him. There's been this whole spectacle with pigs drowning themselves. How will people react? Well, verse 14. The herdsmen, so these farmers, they fled and they told it in the city, verse 14, and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So have a look at them. What did they do? Well, First of all, they ran off to tell about it. So they, they ran to tell others. And it said they went into the city and the country. And then the people came to see the spectacle. So people came out to see it. Then thirdly, they saw the man. They looked at him. Now, did you see that description of this man? Three things. And it's really striking given what we've learned early on in the chapter. He's sitting. Not running around the place. He's sitting. He's clothed. Presumably he was either naked before or hadn't very many clothes on, which was a, a, a sign that you were really out of your mind. And here we have him sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. And this is what the people are now seeing. What's their reaction? They were afraid. Fear. And they began then to convert that fear 
feet are pleading, are begging Jesus to leave. Get out, go away, Jesus. Fear in this story has kind of transferred. But they were afraid of the man, this crazy guy who put him in chains. But now no longer. They're not afraid of him, but now they're afraid of Jesus. And so they plead with him to leave their region. It's true about fear, you know. It can lead to a kind of awe, a kind of step back. I mean, perhaps you heard the wind this week when you were sitting in your house and wondering about it. And it just makes you wonder as you hear those huge gusts. And you can have awe. But then it can go one of two ways, depending on how strong the wind is, maybe. Fear can lead to awe. And then disciples are on that path. You see, they were afraid of the storm. Then they're starting to wonder through their fear, who is this? Who then is this? And we know by the, as Mark goes along, there's this fear becoming sight. But actually, the, the end of Mark is quite interesting because there's fear again, almost prompting us to wonder about Jesus even more. But anyway, it can go towards faith. Or fear can lead to awe. And then if you're So it's like somehow there's this complete awe. And for the people here seeing this man sitting clothed and in his right mind, it goes the other way. It goes to a kind of, hold on a minute, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm actually afraid. And it becomes unbelief. So that's, that's the two options. Now put yourself in the shoes of those villagers just for a moment. Having heard the reports and seen the crazy man now sitting clothed in his right mind, they're right to be afraid in some sense. Well, you would be, wouldn't you? But there's another step in which this fear gets faced up and then turns to disbelief. Think about it. I'm confronted with these stories. And I've, I've been telling you, they're not parables. They're historical accounts. People witness these things. They happen. And there are two possible reactions for us too. So we could ask, who then is this? Like the disciples. Who then is this? That unresolved question that's left hanging in verse 41 of chapter 4. Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Or we could have the reaction of verse 17 of chapter 5. A reaction that, that begs Jesus to leave the region. Jesus, leave. Go. So there's two options when it comes to this. And Mark is setting all this up because he wants us not to follow the verse 17 reaction. Because the end of the story, look at verse 18, and Mark doesn't just stop there, but he wants us to have a different reaction. Look from verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demon, so he's no longer sitting, but he comes back. He begged Jesus that it might be with him. And he did not permit him, Jesus didn't permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And what did the man do? Well, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, through these ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So Mark wants us not just to have the, the fear reaction, the pleading Jesus to leave, but he wants us to be people who, who go and tell others about what the Lord has done for us. It would be much better as far as Mark's concerned 
hungering, who then is this? And then starting to tell the news about him. And from the evidence we've been looking at, there is someone with the power to subdue not just nature, but evil, people who are ruling out of control. So will I trust them? This section of Mark is not just aimed at people who have never heard the good news. But that intensity we spoke about at the start is actually Jesus talking to his disciples, people who have already acknowledged that he is Lord. And so the challenge is for us too as Christians. Will I trust him? Will I beg him to leave? Well, what will trust look like? Well, I once read that when we like people, maybe you find this, when we like people and when we trust them, we look at them. Have you ever found that? Think about it. When you like someone and when we trust them, we look at them. Have a look at the next interview with Donald Trump and someone who doesn't particularly like him. And you'll see the eye contact is anywhere. Didn't like him. They certainly didn't trust him. And they're certainly not going to to look at him. Well, think about that when it comes to Mark. Mark's urging us to look at Jesus, not to beg him to leave, not to look somewhere else, not to sort of stand and all, but be rather afraid and actually to ask him to leave. Will we look at Jesus as these things unfold in the Bible? Will we, will we look in his word? Will we stand with his people? Will we pray? Not just glancing every now and then in his direction, but trusting him with our lives and our hopes and our plans and our dreams. Now, trust for Jesus' followers also seems to have been about the timing. Jesus clearly expected his disciples to trust him even when the waves were were coming into the boat. And, And they were struggling with this. Years ago, there was a singer I used to listen to, and one of the lines in one of their songs went like this. It says, who is going to catch me when my plane goes down? So it's a question unresolved, just like, well, who will I have faith in when things are really going bad? Christians who have read Mark's account about Jesus have been confronted with the reality that we can trust Jesus, even when the waves were coming into the boat. We can trust the one who subdued nature itself. He's the stronger one we need to pledge our lives to, even before the crisis hits, and even if the miraculous never takes place for us. Well, the Bible calls that faith. And there's a wonderful verse in in Romans chapter 4, verse 21, that faith is being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised. That's what faith is. Being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised. Will we be people who have faith, not fear? Now, perhaps you are finding yourself reeling these days. And maybe it's not as dramatic as chapter 5 here. We're not like the man who can't be chained. But yet, inside your reeling nonetheless, will you trust the one who controls the legions of evil? Who commands them? Who stands in authority over them? Perhaps you may even need to reaffirm that trust in light of your present circumstances, in spite of what you're feeling. Faced with this problem or this situation, I will trust you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it may be time for you, if you've been considering this good news over these weeks, 
to deciding for the first time, the definitive time, to follow Jesus Christ, to become a Christian. There's one famous convert to Christianity, and he described his life before he became a Christian. You'll have heard of C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia books. Well, Lewis said this. He said his life before he became a Christian was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Interesting description of all the things going on in his life, all the things over which he had no control, over which nothing was helping stop the, the craziness, if you like. Well, at this point, Mark's gospel is a call to trust Jesus Christ, who is so much stronger than the makeup of all your legion of troubles, distractions, problems, anxieties, worries. And it's a call to hand it all over in a, an unconditional surrender to the one who's stronger. Well, perhaps you'll surrender today as we stand once again, looking at the stronger one. In the words of our final song, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. Let's stand and sing.